I want to be cognizant and aware of what is transpiring right now within our local assembly and that we have been consistently uh, been assaulted by satanic attacks and that I can see that there is a pressure that is being applied to the body of Christ that we have not seen uh, in recent times. And because of that, I felt impressed to share this word of encouragement with you to empower you to overcome the attacks and the assaults of the enemy. If you have your Bibles and you're at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, please say amen. Amen. 1 Peter 5, verse 8 simply says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. I want to read verse number 8 again. From there I'll be primarily taking my thought, which simply says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Today I'm going to do something I've never done in the over 20 years of preaching is that this is going to be a, a, a two-part message in that you're only going to get the first part today. The second part you'll get the next time I preach. I've never done that before, but the Lord had given me so much that I had to split it into two to, I think, do it justice. And the first half I'm going to preach to you today, which is simply titled, Be Sober. Beware the lion. Be sober. Part one, I guess you want to call it that. Beware the lion. Hallelujah. I want to pray. I, I, I feel very heavy in my spirit that the Holy Ghost is wanting to do something unique in this service. And I want to be able to uh, administer that, to be a conduit through which his presence may flow and touch your lives today. Let us pray. Father, right now we recognize your presence, that you are here that El Shaddai, the Lord God Almighty, is in our midst. And even now, I pray, O oh God, may the spirit of sobriety grip the listeners, O oh Lord Jesus, of this message, that they would fully rec recognize and be aware and be alert, O oh God, of who you are, even in their present-day circumstances that they are facing. I pray, O oh God, let the spirit of the Lord wake us up unto righteousness and make us alert and ready for your coming. Oh God, for your coming is soon. And I pray, have your way in this place. Speak through me only as you can. I give you the praise and the honor and all the glory. And in Jesus' name, let the church living God say, Amen. You may be seated. There are three questions I want to answer in addressing this text. Number one, what did Peter mean by being sober in this verse? We've heard this verse quoted many times before, but what does he really mean by being sober? Number two, why is Peter telling his audience to be sober? What is the, the context, what are the, the events that are transpiring that is causing him to tell his audience that they need to be sober? Thirdly and finally, we'll try and address in this message, is how are we to reach and maintain a level of sobriety? How are we to reach and maintain a level of sobriety? For us to understand what Peter means to be sober... We must understand the context and the reason why he is writing this particular epistle. Now, unlike the other epistles, such as Paul has written, 
when Paul wrote his epistles, his letters, they're written to specific local assemblies, such as the book of Corinthians was written to the church at Corinth, or the book of Ephesians was written to the, uh, the church at Ephesus, or Colossians was written to Colossae, and so on. It was to a specific group or member of a, 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 a local assembly of a church, so to speak. But Peter's epistle is not addressed to a specific local assembly. Instead, it is addressed to a a plethora of churches in a very large region, in various regions here. In the beginning of the book, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. This in of itself makes this book unique because it's not, he's not addressing a specific localized problem in a local assembly. He's addressing a universal general problem that is affecting the whole body of Christ at large. That ought to tell you that what he's about to say in this epistle has great weight and has great merit and is something that we should pay very close attention to. Now from the beginning of this epistle to the end, Peter speaks of tremendous suffering, of trials and afflictions to his audience. He, uh, he speaks of these sufferings, these atrocities, these, these travesties, these horrible things and calamities that the, the body of Christ is trying to deal with. We see here in this same chapter in verse number 7, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, Peter says this, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold, that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, who having not seen ye love, and whom though now ye see him not, yet believing ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. He tells his audience that you are going through a tremendous trial, but this trial of your faith is precious. It's something to be treasured. It's something that is of great value to God and also to yourself. In the next chapter in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 19, Peter continues to address this immense suffering that the body of Christ was going through during this time. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 19. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it when ye be buffeted for your faults? Ye shall take it patiently. But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, that this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Notice how many times suffering was mentioned just in these, these three verses here. The Greek word for suffering here is pasco. It means suffer, to be vexed and to be passioned or to enter into passion. The Bible describes the crucifixion of Christ as his passion, that Jesus Christ went through his passion, his suffering, to feel immense pain and trauma, immense anguish and hurt. This word, suffering, pasco, that we see here in the Greek, is used more than twice as much in this epistle than any other book in the, in the Bible. Then I tell you something. There is something very intense going on with the church during this particular time. He uses this word more than any other New Testament writer in this epistle. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. The question we should ask ourselves is, why? 1 Peter 3, 14. But if ye suffer, pasco, the Greek word, for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. 
and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God so be that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. The church was experiencing an unparalleled, heightened intensity of suffering. What was that suffering? It was persecution. The body of Christ was being persecuted at an unparalleled level that they'd ever seen before. Prior to this point, the body of Christ had only been persecuted or attacked by the Jews, by Pharisees and Sadducees, those who wanted to protect their positions in their religion. But this, this became escalated in 64 AD. One possible theory as to why there was so much suffering during this particular time was that in 64 AD, the city of Rome burned to the ground. A large, significant uh, p- uh, portion of the city caught fire and burned to the ground. And the thing is this, the populace of Rome, they blamed the emperor, which was Nero at the time. And many historians actually believe that Nero did in fact set fire to the city of Rome because he wanted to expand his palace. And so he burned down people's businesses and houses and then built new grounds for his palace in those places. So when this occurred and people began to connect the dots and to blame Nero for this. Nero needed a scapegoat. He needed someone to take the heat for him. So he blamed the Christians. He said it was the Christians that burned your house to the ground. It was the Christians that set fire to your businesses and removed your place of of, of socialization. And so now the Christians were being persecuted mercilessly by the the government itself. Not only the other religious individuals and local governments by the Pharisees and the Jews, but now the whole weight of the Roman Empire was bearing down on every Christian that was in existence. I want to read verse 16 of 1 Peter chapter 3 again very closely because it gives us a clue as to what is going on here. Having a good conscience... That whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. The body of Christ, the church, was being falsely accused of a crime they never committed and was suffering immensely because of this false accusation. So firstly, they're suffering because of a false accusation. And secondly, they are suffering because they are living righteously and holy unto God. First Peter chapter 4, verse number 3. I'm going somewhere with this. Bear with me here. First Peter chapter 4, verse 3. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. They were maligning and slandering and speaking evil and badly about the body of Christ because they did not engage in the social practices of the day, particularly the state religion of Rome of worshiping the gods and the idols of the day. They didn't get drunk. They did not party. They did not engage in sexual immorality. They were unusual. They were strange. They were foreigners and pilgrims. And because of this, they were maligned. They were isolated and ostracized and no longer included within society. They were easy scapegoats and easy people to persecute and to 
pick on. So firstly, my name has been liable and been slandered. My reputation destroyed and I'm being beat up for this. And secondly, I'm being beat up because I'm trying to do the right thing. The Roman persecution is intensifying and it has only just begun. The Nero persecution went on for at least five years where Nero himself was hunting down Christians and bringing them into the arena and feeding them to lions and wild dogs, crucifying them and setting them on fire and using them as candles and torches in his palace, boiling them in hot oil, uh, sawing them asunder, having them drawn and quartered, having their limbs tied to horses and having themselves ripped in four different uh, directions. He tortured and butchered Christians like cattle. So you can understand that when Peter is writing his epistle about suffering that he's not just talking about well you know my girlfriend just broke up with me or I didn't have enough money to pay the rent these Christians are fighting for their very survival so you can understand that the constant barrage of attacks leaves the believer in a state of bewilderment and confusion so throughout his epistle Peter admonishes his audience to be sober. The response to this assault, to this barrage of attacks, is sobriety. To be sober. Turn with me back to 1 Peter now. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Peter says, be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. The word there for sober is the Greek word nepho, which means to be sober, to watch, but it also means to be calm, to be collected in spirit, having presence of mind and clear judgment. The second word, vigilant, is the Greek word gregorio, which means to watch, to be awake, to be vigilant, to give strict attention, to be cautious, active, to take heed, lest through remission and indolence some destructive calamity suddenly overtake you. So he's saying you need to be calm. The very government itself, the most powerful empire in the world, is hunting you down and is trying to kill you. And Peter says, I want you to be calm, collected. Control yourself. Be about your wits. Be watchful and alert. Now, isn't that interesting? I want you to calm down because everyone's trying to kill you. But also be alert. Calm down. Be alert. Calm down. But be alert. Now when we see the word about sobriety, about being sober, we often apply this word to the abstinence of alcohol, such as wine. But in this particular case, Peter is telling his audience that it is imperative that in the midst of this intense suffering that you stay calm, alert, and maintain your wits because suffering often clouds one's judgment resulting in destruction and stupid mistakes. You're in a crisis situation. You're in a war, a battle situation. Bullets are flying over your head. Explosions are surrounding you. People are dying around you. And God is trying to tell you, you need to stay calm because if you panic if you get anxious you will kill yourself you 
You cannot lose your nerve in the middle of a battle situation. You've got to keep it together. Control yourself. Get a hold of yourself. Gain your wit about you. And stand your ground. Now, what is interesting here is that Peter uses the analogy of a lion in describing the enemy of our soul. A cosmic homicidal maniac who has studied human tendencies for thousands of years, who watches us and knows our weaknesses, knows and counts our numbers, and is maliciously and intentionally trying to destroy not only our body but our soul itself. That Peter uses the description of a lion to describe him. And that is not by happenstance or accident. Because when you understand how lions hunt, you can see how appropriate this description is. Here are some facts about lions. That lions, for one, they're very patient. They are very patient because, you know, there's not a McDonald's just out in the middle of the safari. <laughs> they are patient. And they bide their time. What's interesting here is that Peter describes Satan as a roaring lion. Now the thing is that if a lion is roaring, of course, that's going to alert all the gazelle and water buffalo. It's time to get out of Dodge. That would seem to spoil the element of surprise in this particular case. So then why on earth is the lion roaring when he's trying to catch and devour a prey? Zoologists have discovered that lions, for one, they roar. One, because they want to allow uh, or basically alert other lions, other creatures, that this is their territory. This is my territory, and if you come on my turf, we're going to have a problem. They, you, lions also roar to communicate with one another. But I think the third fact is probably the most interesting. Older lions who have lost their teeth and ability to hunt... Have been observed using their still powerful roars to distract prey from younger hunting lions who are prowling nearby and to scare the prey closer to the actual predatory group members. So what the lion will do, the older lion will go roar and roar, scare all the gazelle towards a specific direction where other lions are hiding to get them. And so what happens is, the lion roars, the gazelle or the water buffalo or the zebra, it's acting on instinct. Its instinct is fear. It is not sober. It is not thinking clearly about why would the lion be wrong? Why wouldn't he want to stay secret instead of telling me where his position is? Instead, the zebra, the gazelle, the water buffalo, whatever it is, begins to take off running because it's in panic. And it actually it thinks it's escaping a danger but getting to the real Danger. The lion uses its roar to steer its prey into a trap. And the prey reacts out of fear to avoid an obvious danger, not realizing that they are running into the real danger. Likewise, we must not allow the attacks of the enemy to intoxicate us with fear and hopelessness because greater danger lies ahead. Don't you understand when you get that bill and you're hearing the line of Satan roar so there's no way you're going to pay this or you get that doctor's notice saying that you got stage 3 cancer and there's no way out of this. You start to panic as you hear the roar of Satan saying that you're going to die. You're not going to make it. Or the roar of Satan's accusations and condemnation nation saying uh, that your sins will never be forgiven, uh, that nobody loves you, and you begin to panic uh, and get anxiety.
anxiety attacks and you can't sleep at night and you're in survival mode and you're trying to keep your head above water. But the Lord is telling you today to be sober. Don't you run. Don't you panic. Stay where you are before you do something that will destroy yourself. You need to be careful because the enemy has got you scoped out and he is waiting for the right opportunity. He knows what's buttoned the press that makes you jump, that makes your heart quake and your heart beat quicken. He knows what makes you afraid. He knows this. And so he's going to roar at just the right moment to scare you, to get you into panic. And then he's got you right where he wants you. And you're going through right now a situation where the pressure is beyond measure. You don't know what to do. You're going crazy because of the fear and because of the intensity that you're experiencing. But the Lord says in Philippians 4, 6, be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Be sober. Be sober. Don't allow the sirens and the alarms and all the cries and the screams alert you or get you into a place of fear. Because when you act out of fear, you're not acting out of sobriety. We often think of beer and alcohol and wine as that which intoxicates. But fear can be a greater drug, a greater narcotic, a greater not, not, uh, uh, intoxicator that can make you do crazy things. People do the stupidest things out of fear. Now, I want to really dive into what it really means to be sober. Turn with me now to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. Remember, now, Peter, he's right into a church that's going under intense persecution. And his warning, his admonishment to them is to be sober. 1 Peter 4, 7, he says, But the end of all things is at hand. Be therefore sober and watch. Now, the Greek word here for sober is different. It's sophroneo. The word watch is nepho, which we saw in 1 Peter 5, 8. But I want to talk about this other word, sophroneo. It means to be in right, one's right mind, be sober, to be of sound mind, to be in one's right mind, to exercise self-control, to put a moderate estimate upon oneself, think of oneself soberly, and to curb one's passions. Now, what's interesting here, this word is only used one other time in the entire Bible. And it's found in Mark chapter 5. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus comes off of a boat having calmed the Sea of Galilee. And as he gets onto the shore, he is met by a man who is possessed by thousands of devils called Legion. The man is naked and covered in sores and, and, and cuts and is completely out of his mind. And Jesus begins to have a dialogue with this uh, legion, with this devil. This man is possessed, as some have estimated, as many as four to 6,000 devils. And during this exchange, of course, Christ overcomes and he casts these thousands of devils out of this man. And in Mark chapter 5, verse 15, we see the writer of the Gospel of Mark telling us what state the man's mind was in after he had been delivered by the legion. Mark 5, verse 15. And they come to Jesus and see him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his sophroneo, his right mind. And they were afraid to be sober then. 
To be sober then. This is giving us an example of what it means to be sober. To be sober, therefore, is to be calm in one's right mind, clear thinking, in control of oneself, and free of satanic influence. The state of this man was, was, was in his right mind because he no longer was under the influence of satanic oppression. A Christian is truly sober when his mind is not dictated by the influences of satanic ideologies. Where his mind is not, does not succumb to the pressure that surrounds him or her when when the enemy is attacking us. He does not jump when the devil says to jump. He does not go to where the devil tells him to go. He does not partake of the eatings and the king's meat like the devil tells him to do. His mind is sober. To truly be sober means your mind is free of satanic influence. To be calm. I want to tell you right now, you're going through a trial. You're going through intense tribulation. You're at your, your last, on your last nerve. And I want to tell you that the reason why this is occurring is because the devil's objective in any assault or attack is to at some juncture to get you to lose your mind. And in the intoxicating stupor and the confusion of chaos, he's able to dominate and to destroy us. And the thing is, as we're in this, this survival mode, this chaos, this, this panic mode, we get frustrated. Any of you been ever frustrated when you're going through a trial? When you prayed and you fasted, it seems like nothing is happening. The heavens are shut up. You've done all you can. And now all you're left to do is, as Donnie McClurkin said, is to stand and try and hold your wits together. And as the devil tries to frustrate you and anger you because you'll make more mistakes when you're angry and frustrated. He's trying to get you to lose your mind. Yeah. Ephesians 4 verse 26 says, Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither give place unto the devil. Don't let the enemy get under your skin. Don't let him get on your nerve. No, you keep your nerve. You hold your peace and you let God fight your battles. He will do everything to frustrate you. He knows what buttons to push, what relationships to exploit, what things to happen at your job, what things to mess with your kids to get under your nerve. He knows to get you frustrated so that you come out of your Christ-like character and do something stupid. And there, you're vulnerable to satanic attack. Now, lions, they often go after prey that are isolated and weakened as they are easier to catch. And the devil does everything he can to separate us from each other and make us think that our problems are unique. That the things I'm dealing with, nobody else has ever dealt with this. I can't tell anyone about what I'm going through because they'll laugh at me. They'll condemn me. They'll curse me out. They'll think I'm a weirdo. They'll, 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 they'll push me out of the fellowship. I can't tell people what I'm really going to. Don't you understand? That is the tactic of the enemy to separate you. That's why zebras, they go in herds. Because their strength in numbers and their movements can confuse the enemy that is trying to devour them. But what often happens is that we isolate ourselves. We, 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 we go alone to our, our, our little sad closet and we, we cry and bemoan and we boo-hoo and we don't tell anybody or ask for prayer or anything. We think nobody else is going through what I'm going through. 
And it's in that isolation that the devil is able to discourage and to devour us. First Peter 4.12, Peter again writing to his audience says this, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings that when his glory shall be revealed ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. I want you to understand that we are part of an army. We are not a one-band mercenary group. You're not a lone wolf. You are not fighting by yourselves. You have brothers and sisters in arms. And an attack on one of us is an attack on all of us. Come on, somebody. You need to understand that if the enemy is pressing your brother or sister, it's going to come your way. You just wait because he's not going to just leave one of us alone. He's got to destroy the whole body. Don't wait till he comes to your door. You've got to be proactive and take the fight to him. You can't win a war fighting defensively. At some point, you've got to fire a gun. You've got to throw a punch, throw a kick, get dirty if you have to. But by God, I'm going to win this fight. By hook or by crook, by hell or by heart, by water, I'm going to win this fight. You are not suffering alone. You're not crying alone. The body of Christ is under attack. The body of Christ is being assaulted. We must take back the kingdom, hallelujah, of darkness and fight against it. And the gates of hell shall not prevail. It is imperative that we maintain our wit and we maintain our nerve. That we remain calm and collected. Calm. And collected. Oh, that sounds really great. Easy for you to say. You don't have what I've got right now, Pastor. You don't have the problems I got. Okay, you don't understand what I'm dealing with. Oh, that's real cute. Say a little something. It's just, just stay calm. Just stay calm. You know, you're in the airplane. The mask drops down. The, the plane kind of drops them up. Everyone, please remain calm. Please put on your air mask and make sure that you're both... Easy for you to say. You're not in the airplane. No, 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 no. How do we, remember my question, the other question I want to answer. How do we get to that level of sobriety and maintain it in the middle of overwhelming adversity and suffering? There are three things I want to give unto you, and I'm going to close this message. Number one, the first thing we have to do, as I just stated, is you've got to remain calm. To reach sobriety, to think clearly, you must remain calm. The Bible says in Psalm 46 verse 10, Be still and know that I am God. Hallelujah. I feel the Holy Ghost in that. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is is our refuge. Now I want you to understand something why this panic attack thing happens. Satan's attack on our sobriety is to first take away our sense and awareness of God's presence. I tell you right, right now, okay, with my kids, especially let's say my youngest son Nathan, you know, if he sees mom or daddy leaving, ah! just trying to poop. Come on. Oh, I'm sorry. That was a little too real. 
parent struggles. Y'all don't know, man. Y'all don't know. Anyway, I digress. The moment I'm out of sight, because he's no longer aware of my presence. And the thing what the devil wants to do, he wants to bombard you with so much stuff, so many problems that you can't sense that God is, is there. And then once you can't sense that God is there, you start to panic. I got no help. Nobody else is going to help me. All I had is God and God isn't there. And you start flipping out, freaking out, because you cannot sense God's presence. We must invoke the power of the Holy Ghost to bring about calm and clear our minds. And we do this by recognizing that God is with us. I want to tell you right now, as you're sitting on this pew, as you're watching this broadcast, that God is omnipresent, that there is no place in space or time where God's presence is not there. The Bible calls God Emmanuel, God with us. The psalmist said in Psalm 23 verse 4 that yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I would fear no evil. Why? Because thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Because thou art with me. You're with me. I want you to understand. Don't panic because God is with you. The El Shaddai, the almighty, omnipotent, all-powerful, self-sustaining, self-existent God is with you. And no man can pluck you out of his hand. Hallelujah. He owns a cat on a thousand hills. He is eternal without beginning or ending of days. He is the rock of ages. He is the amen and the faithful and true witness. He is the bright and morning star. He's a bridge over troubled waters. He is my refuge and my strength. He is my shield and my buckler and my fortress. In him will I put my trust. He is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? You need to recognize who you're rolling with, who is by your side and who lives inside of you. God is with you. God is with you. Romans 8, 31 says, what shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Come on, somebody. Why are you panicking? Why are you scared? Why are you worrying? Don't you know that the God of the universe stands in you and with you? Don't panic. Be sober. sober. You cannot make sound judgments or decisions when you're in a state of panic. And this is why we must take, make sure to allow God's peace to stand with us. The Christians ought to be the most sober, the most calm, the most collected, easygoing folk that there is. We've got something to sustain us when the hurricane force winds of life blow against us. Everyone else is built on singing sand, but I'm built upon the rock of ages because Christ is my foundation, the author and the finisher of my faith. I've got something eternal to sustain my steps, to ensure that I do not slip or fall or lose my footing. My trust is in, is in Jesus Christ. My trust is in the God of the universe, the only living God to whom there is no God from before or after. Do you understand what I'm saying about being sober? You need to understand that if you have Jesus with you, you've got peace. Peace 
is not the absence of drama. Peace is not the absence of trouble or war or conflict. But peace is when you're immovable and cannot be shaken by what assaults you. Colossians 3 verse 15 says, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you are called in one body, and be ye thankful. You need to allow God's peace, God who is the Prince of Peace, to take residence inside of your fearful heart and to dispel the darkness and dispel the fear and the anxiety. I hear the word of God say in 2 Timothy 1.7, For God had not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. You got to be calm to be sober. I got to wrap this up. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Somebody's getting delivered from that. Somebody's experiencing God's peace right now. You were in panic mode and you thought that everyone had abandoned you, but God has not left you. He said He'd never leave you nor forsake you. I'll be with you even under the end of the age. I am with you. I am with you in the waters. I'm with you in the fire. I'm with you in the earthquake. I'm with you when you've lost your job. I'm living with you when you've lost your spouse. I'm with you when your children forsake you. I'm with you when everyone else leaves you. I will never leave you. Nor forsake you. Number two, to be sober. I've really got to wrap this up. I put too much stuff in this mess. Number two, to be sober and to maintain sobriety, you've got to keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Peter tells his audience to maintain a bearing or a point of reference to avoid confusion. We must keep our focus on Jesus. We must not become entangled with the affairs of this life, with politics and what's going on in social media, but instead we must transfix our eyes on the cross, on Calvary, from which that crimson stream of blood flows and gives us our salvation and our pardon. We must keep our focus on Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 says this, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ we sing the song in church when I think about the Lord and how he saved me and how he raised me and how he picked me up and turned me around how he placed my feet on solid ground it's time that we remind ourselves of the goodness of God and we put our eyes back on Christ hallelujah and him alone the Bible says in Hebrews 12 verse number 2 looking unto Jesus the author and the finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God for consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds that if Jesus could overcome it he has empowered me to overcome it the Bible said that greater is he that is within you than he that is within the world First John chapter 5 verse 4 says for whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world who is he that overcometh the world but he that believeth that Jesus Christ is the son of God we've got to remember that we have the overcomer inside of us and to keep our eyes on him and him alone third thing and this may be one of the most important now the third thing and this may seem a bit strange bullets 
flying over you. Explosions happening. Be calm. Okay, got that. I'm going to calm down. Whew. All right. Be calm. Then I'm going to keep my eyes on a good reference point to make sure my commanding officer is there. I can get orders. Okay, got that. All right. Third thing, humble yourself. You're like, what? Being sober is connected to humility? Look what Peter says here. Now I'm going to go back a few verses from the main text I read to give context here. Because this will help you really interpret what, what Peter is trying to say here. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. Look at this very closely. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. There are none so sober than those who walk in humility. For arrogance and pride are the greatest of intoxicants that clouds the mind and stupefies our senses. When we humble ourselves and recognize that we cannot get through our problems without the aid of Jesus Christ, we are walking in the greatest level of sobriety. Oh, I got it. I got it. I can handle this. I got it. And in your arrogance and in your pride, you will not call out for help. And because of that, you're no longer sober. You're no longer thinking clearly because you're no longer relying on Jesus Christ to save you. If you could save yourself, then Jesus would not have gotten on that cross. You can't do it yourself. And the fact of the matter is there are too many people that are drunk off their own ego. They've been buying their own press. And they think they can handle it themselves. You're drunk and you are not sober. No, the greatest sobriety is to realize I, I, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus to save me. To repent of one's sins is to be sober and to acknowledge one's sinful estate. The next verse he says, be sober. Be vigilant. Because the, your adversary, the devil, roameth about as a roaring lion. Now, do you know what a group of lions is called? It's called a pride. What did Peter say? Humble yourself. Why? Because God resisteth the proud. Your pride is like a group of lions that will destroy yourself because you will not enlist the aid of Jesus Christ to help you. And because of that, you are just as like a drunkard man that's stumbling on your own ego, your own arrogance, because you will not ask the church to pray. You won't tell anybody about it. You won't go to anyone for help. You're trying to try and handle it all by yourself because you got big boy pants on and you can, you're tough and you can take it. We are a body. I'm not Rambo. I'm not going to Vietnam with a, with a machete and a, a bazooka and taking out the whole Vietnam army by myself. Okay? We are an army. We're a unit. we got to stick together. And the only way that's going to occur is when you humble yourself. 1 Peter 5 verse 9, he says, Whom resist steadfast in the faith. Notice this. He says to resist the devil. Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, 
who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen you, settle you. James 4, 7 says this in conjunction with that. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. I close with this last thought. Lions are powerful, terrifying creatures. And when one comes after you, it can be a, a horrifying experience. The thing about lions is they don't have stamina. They can only run for so long. They can only sprint. And the thing is, when the devil starts coming at you with everything, it's like, like, like the book of Job. There's one thing, the car breaks down, then you lose your job, and then everyone leaves you, and everything's falling apart, and it feels like there's no possible way I'm going, that line is catching up on me. I tell you, be sober and rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. I know that you're tired. I know that you're weary, and you can smell the breath and feel the panting of the line approaching on your back, but I want to tell you to be encouraged that if if you hold out just a little bit longer if you just run a few more steps they'll outrun and you'll outlast the devil that's trying to devour you but I can't do it the sorrow is too much the depression is too much the trauma is too much the hurt is too much I want to tell you that the joy of the Lord is your strength that when I get into a fight and I think I'm going to lose I remember why I started fighting in the first place and what God brought me through and what God rescued me through it and that puts a little bit more energy in my step to evade the line I want to encourage you brethren you just need to last a little bit longer Galatians 6 9 says and let us not be weary in well doing for in due season we shall reap if we faint not don't give up don't give out and don't give under stay the course be sober keep your eyes on Jesus remain calm and go after with all that you have let's stand Let's stand. I'm quitting. God wants his church. Amen. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. We've got to be sober, church. I know the pressure is overwhelming. I know it feels like you're just going to buckle under. You're just about to collapse under the weight of all the things that you're carrying, you're dealing with. Nor is seed begging for bread. But if you feel like you're going to buckle under the load, I tell you what Matthew eleven twenty eight says. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and ye shall find rest. Notice that resting thing. Isn't that, that kind of sounds like being calm, doesn't it? That's the first step to getting sober. And ye shall find rest unto your souls. You've been drunk, and I don't mean with wine and alcohol, but you've been drunk with the problems of this life. You're operating your vehicle under the influence of depression, under the influence of fear, under the influence of a trauma that happened in your childhood, under the influence of pain. And because of that, you are about to run, run aground in shipwreck. You're about to crash into a telephone pole. Because you're operating under the influence, the intoxication of the devil. He is demonizing you. He is terrifying you, doing everything he can to get you to crash. 
and the Lord, the Holy Spirit, he's saying to you right now to be sober. To one, calm down. Two, get your bearing on a point of reference, that being the cross of Jesus Christ. And thirdly, to humble yourself and to fully put the situation in God's hands. You cannot solve it on your own. Only by the power of the Holy Ghost can you be set free. Only by the power of the Holy Ghost can you truly be sober, be healed, and be delivered. I offer you this opportunity to come to the greatest alcoholic anonymous meeting you've ever seen. We don't have recovering alcoholics when you leave here. You're no longer an alcoholic because the Bible said in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things that passed away, you're all things that become new. Jesus wants to sober you up. He wants to bring your blood alcohol levels down back to normal. Take all that intoxication out of your liver. The fear, the hurt, the pain, the condemnation. God is here to sober you now here's what I want us to do let's follow those three steps I just gave I want us just to take a moment to just be quiet to be still and to know that the Lord is God I want you to recognize that at this very moment you are in the presence of the almighty God the one by his just one sentence formed and created the heavens and the earth the one who formed the planets and all the celestial bodies in the sky, the one who caused the mountains to come forth, the one who does not have beginning or ending of days, the eternal living God who humbles himself just to look down at the angels in heaven, Elion, the most high God, you're in his very presence right now. Let that sober you for a minute. And grip your mind. The Holy Ghost is here. He's about to do something right here. Someone's about to come out of some things. Be still. Thank you, Jesus. Be still and know that I am Yahweh, Jehovah. Hey, I'm Asiah. That I am the living God. The bread of life and the fountain of water, living waters. Let that begin to sink into your mind. Sink into your mind that he is the omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. God, Emmanuel, God with us. He has not abandoned you. He has not left you. He is here right now. Just take a moment. Take a moment. Let that sink into your spirit. God Almighty. The living, true God. Hmm. Think about who is standing beside you right now. Who is walking with you right now. The almighty.